God is so good. And I, I want us to focus this morning in the short time that we have for this message, and we will take communion as soon as the message is over. I just felt like it dovetailed beautifully with where we're going today on this Christmas Sunday. I, I feel like um, in the Christmas spirit, the one thing we're missing is the spirit of Christmas. And what is that? Well, if you ask the world, there are many common phrases in our culture that make up Christmas spirit. To some, it speaks of an attitude that people carry through the Christmas season. To Scrooge, the Christmas spirit was a ghost. To the liquor industry, the Christmas spirit translates into the highest drinking day of the year behind New Year's Day. To others, Christmas spirit is when families actually call a truce and get along for the day. For many, Christmas spirit is expressed in a sentimental card. By the way, the United States of America will spend over $3 billion in holiday greeting cards this year. For some, the Christmas spirit is not so frivolous or fun. Instead, Christmas spirit is of a profound sadness to them, a time of heightened awareness of pain or of loss of a loved one, while everyone around you is experiencing the euphoria and the joy of Christmas. But for most, Christmas spirit is best represented by gift giving. If retail sales are any indication, the Christmas spirit is alive and well because this year we'll reach between $850 billion and $1 trillion in spending. The Christmas spirit. What is it, really? Well, as always, the best answer to that question is found in the Word of God. And so I'd like for you, if you will, to take your Bible and turn uh, with me to, we're going to pick up, uh, I want you to pick up with me at Luke 1.46. But while you're turning, let me share with you what Bart read. He read the Christmas spirit found in these various characters of the birth narrative of Jesus Christ recorded in Luke's gospel. You heard about Elizabeth, Zacharias, you heard about the angels, you heard about the shepherds, you heard about Simeon, and you heard about Anna. They all had one basic response to our Savior's birth, which reflects, I believe, the absolute, purest, true spirit of Christmas. What is it? Worship. Today I want to focus our time before Christmas this weekend, this next weekend, I want to focus us on worship because that is the essence of Christmas. The spirit of Christmas is the praise, the thanksgiving, the blessing, and the glory that's due to God for the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. You can sum up the Christmas spirit in two words, God worship. Say that with me, God worship. Over in Matthew 2, 2, it was the wise men who came from the east who actually said, we have come to worship him. That was the purpose for their coming, thousands of miles. Over in Matthew chapter 2, verse 8, 
Even wicked Herod picked up on the spirit of the event and asked where the child was born. And he gave this reason for asking, so that I may come and worship him also. While he was lying through his teeth, he was smart enough to know that that's why people were celebrating, to worship God. Everybody was caught up in the worship of the Christ child. This Gospel of Luke records and tells us that the supreme attitude of Christmas is worship, a time when we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, and we worship Him. It's not just a matter of recognizing that He is God with us, but truly from our heart, worshiping the Lord. Let me give you, if I can, write this down if you'd like, but the idea of worship itself is an attitude. It's a spirit. It's something on the inside of us. It's an attitude of the heart that is so filled with wonder and gratitude at what God has done that there's not a single thought of personal need or personal blessing, only a total commitment to God in praise and adoration. That is worship. Worship is the most selfless thing that a human being can do. It's to be so grateful and so filled with the wonder at what the Lord has done that we lose ourselves in adoration and praise. When was the last time you worshiped God like that? No greater time in the year to worship Him than when we think about Christ incarnate. What better time for this than Christmas when we think about the inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ. Now, to add depth to our understanding of the Christmas spirit, we have to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Without question, she gives the most magnificent psalm or song of worship that's recorded in the whole New Testament. It's known as the Magnificat, the Magnificat. Mary's psalm or song of praise to God. It's there in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. I want you to follow with me as I read it again. Bart read it for us once, but let's read it again. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear, fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This is a song about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Mary had full, please understand, Mary had full knowledge that she was to be the mother of the Son of God. In verse 34 and 35, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And back in verse 32, if you look at that, she was told that her offspring would be great and that he would be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord would give him the throne of his father David over which he would reign forever. Even Elizabeth, in her greeting, called her the mother of my Lord. So Mary bursts forth in this psalm in the only appropriate response to worship the most high God. This is the very first person to experience and worship on Christmas. Mary. And she gives God all the praise as the most high God. Now, I want to pause for just a moment here. I want to pause and I want to make sure that we put Mary in her proper biblical role. I want us to see Mary in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. You see, and I want to be so careful and sensitive as I share what I'm about to say because I am in no way wanting to wound I'm not wanting to belittle a single person that is here. But I do have a commitment before God to present the Bible in its truth and to recognize and to speak when there is error. And so in the prayers of the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in regard to the rosary. Mary is called the mother of God, which in one sense is true. She is the mother of Jesus Christ incarnate, and Jesus is God, but she is not the mother of God in the sense that Jesus derived any of his divinity from her. He did not. She is the mother of God only in the sense that Jesus derived his human nature from her. She bore a human being who happened to be God while he was in flesh and blood. Unfortunately, many have been led into, and I'll just call it what it is, it's perverse. Satan always wants to take a God-given truth and try to lure us to fulfill it in a God-forbidden way. He takes what is true. He can't create truth because Satan has zero creative power. All he can do is take what is true and try to invert it, try to discredit it, and to perverse it. And so what we see happening is unfortunately the perverse worship of Mary, as though somehow she contributed to the divinity of Jesus Christ. This false teaching is a major cause for the historical separation between the Roman Catholic Church and what we call Protestantism. Scripture never calls, never 
Nowhere in the Bible does it call for Mary worship. Yet that is exactly what millions of people around the globe have been led to believe. They have been led to believe in the immaculate conception, which has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. It has to do with the birth of Mary. The idea that Mary lived her entire life without ever sinning, that is not true biblically. Say what you want. You can say, well, I was taught this. This is what the popes have taught down through the ages. I don't care. The Bible does not teach this. Okay? Listen, Mary, the mother of Jesus, needed the atoning work of Christ on the cross just like every other sinner. Here's another man-engineered doctrine. The perpetual virginity of Mary. That she never knew a man her entire life. That she was a perpetual virgin. The only reason you would ever say or manufacture such a false claim is to preserve the narrative system created by man that keeps her pure and untouchable. She has to be. In other words, it's like dominoes. One falsehood has to be built on another falsehood. And the whole thing is false. Then there's the assumption of Mary or the bodily ascension of Mary into heaven. The Roman Catholic Church teaches falsely that when Mary assumed her place in heaven, she was coronated. She was coronated the queen of heaven. A position of sovereignty and authority so high that even the Son of God comes to her before he acts in order to get her approval. The immaculate conception, the perpetual virginity, which by the way is ridiculous according to Scripture because Mary had other children. You'd have to literally black out the Bible, parts of the Bible, to believe that. But you've got the immaculate conception, the perpetual virginity, the assumption of Mary, the title Queen of Heaven. All of it is a human cocktail of heresy that to this day perpetuates a cult following of Mary worship. Scripture tells us that she is to be blessed for being chosen as the birth mother of our Lord. She is a special woman. We in the church should, should thank God for this young girl who was faithful, who was pure, and who was godly, and that God chose her to bring forth into the world the Son of God. She's to be blessed, but she is not, according to Scripture, to be worshipped. He was actually, at, listen, th there's such a false narrative given by some that, it, that when Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be bearing the Son of the Most High, they have turned that to mean that Gabriel was ask, actually asking Mary for permission to let Jesus come to the earth. 
We should, listen, we all have friends who've been taught that. That's not something to laugh about. That's not something to ridicule or mock. We should feel for them. We should lovingly pray for them that their eyes would be open to the truth. We should care about those who have been led into error and heresy. They say that when Mary said in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word that the angel departed from her, that this is Mary granting permission for everything to happen that was about to happen to her and on the earth. God help us. All of this presents an extremely convoluted and perverse picture of Mary. And as a result, it does inestimable damage to the worship of God because it makes Mary out to be the object of worship rather than a worshiper of God, which is what Scripture says that she is. This is a complete perversion of true worship. But in this psalm, Mary is not worshipped. In this psalm that we just read, Mary is the worshiper. In fact, Mary is the first Christmas worshiper, as I said. So what can we learn about worship from Mary? Let's use Mary as the example of what it looks like to worship God, because she had to worship God like the rest of us. But she does it so beautifully. So write these four things down. Four things we can learn about worship from Mary's experience. Number one, in Mary we see the attitude of worship. Look at verse 46, and Mary said, my soul, here's the word circle, it magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Here's four observations about the attitude of worship. First, worship is internal. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Her inner being magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. Worship does not begin outside of Mary. It started inside of her. She's summing up the whole of her inner being. Worship rises from inside of us. Worship doesn't begin outside of us. It's not the result of some presentation or some performance. It's not the result of a certain mood that is set. It's not the result of anything exterior. It begins in the mind, it begins in the will, and it has a great impact on our emotion. That is the sum of the inner being, mind, will, emotion. With all that is in her, with all that her heart can feel, she focuses upon God and what God has just to reveal to her through the angel. And all that her mind can comprehend, she thinks of. Worship comes from the inside. It bubbles up and overflows a worshiper. And Mary is the example of that. This psalm, this song, is an overflow of her heart. What she is rejoicing over as she considers the truth and the greatness of her God. This is not a person who is committed to a religious 
perfunctory form of worship. It's not about the act of going to church or singing a hymn. It's not about reciting thanks be to God after a scripture reading when the scripture is read before the sermon or placing something in an offering box. It's not something performed in a perfunctory or religious way. It's an internal response. It's the inner heart that is welling up in adoration over the truth regarding God. And finally, it's released in uninhibited praise and worship of God. That's the true sense and understanding of worship. Worship doesn't allow us to focus on ourselves. Worship doesn't get knocked out of kilter because something outside of us happens that just doesn't seem to fit right. Worship is not predicated upon the external circumstances. It comes from within us. It's internal. Secondly, worship is intense. Look at verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Might not grab you as read in the English translation, but the word magnify comes from the root word mega. My soul is mega worshiping God, mega exaltation of God. It's bigger than normal. There's, there's exaltation and then there's mega exaltation. Mary's not just exalting here, she's mega exalting. The word magalune means to cause to swell or to cause to grow. Mary was captured in the overflow of her heart. It couldn't help but just burst out of her. You see, when you have a right understanding of God, a truth about God that comes to your mind, all of a sudden it goes from the mind, your, your, your emotion hears it, you believe it, you experience it, and it flows out of you. It's like it fuels your emotion. That's why in, in Sunday worship here, we, might, we always start in our worship with what we know about God. That's why Brenton takes time to read a scripture passage about God first. We need to be thinking about God. But then that thinking goes into our heart and eventually it, it fuels emotion so that at the close of some songs, we just break out in worship and praise. It's okay if there's a little bit of shouting going on in this place. Really? Tim, thank you for the times the Lord's led you just to let out a word, man. Just, whoa, God's good. Because he is. When we sing, and we sang today, and we came to the verse uh, where we talked about the resurrection of Christ, that he's alive, we're alive. Man, several of you got excited about that. We should get excited. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. Scripture says, clap your hands, all you people. Did you hear that? Clap your hands, all you people. And then it says, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Now, if you, oh, that's weak. So if you mega, if you mega exalt the Lord, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Like you just came off a battlefield where the victory was won and you know you didn't win the battle. God won it. You're in his army. 
You belong to him. You're a victor. You don't come off the battlefield <laughs> sitting on your hands. Woo! That's what it's about. Amen. So worship is internal. Worship is intense. Thirdly, worship is habitual. She said, my soul magnifies. She's expressing a present and continuous action. Comprehending what she's been told isn't related only to an event or a moment. It goes on and on and on. It's not that you just rejoice when you first got saved. The fact that you're saved, every day you ought to be rejoicing over that. Every day you wake up in the morning, thank you, God, you rescued me from a life of sin. Jesus, you took my place on the cross. You pardoned me. I am found in the eyes of God righteous and holy in his sight. Thank you, Jesus. That ought to happen every day for all of us. See, it's not the external circumstances that allow me to worship God. It's internal. Circumstances are going to always change, right? Hello? You know what I'm talking about? God never changes. Paul said, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. True worship becomes a way of life because it's fixed on something that never changes. God never changes. Christ never changes. Salvation never changes. God's promises never change. His covenant never changes. Our future, thank the Lord, never changes. The Spirit never leaves us. Therefore, why should our worship ever change? Your spirit is always willing, even though your flesh is weak. You don't have to give in to the flesh. You can continue constantly worshiping the Lord when you have a thankful heart. Listen, if worship only happens for you on Sunday morning or only happens around the Christmas season or some special event, you're just kidding yourself about true worship. You've never experienced it. Worship doesn't require props. True worship doesn't rise and fall based on feelings because it doesn't begin with feelings. It begins with the truth that never changes. True worship is unchanging because God who you worship is unchanging. When our worship changes, it becomes, it's because we've attached ourselves to some other focus than the unchanging work of God and the unchanging presence of Christ. You've watched and you've attached, oftentimes we do this, you've attached your joy to a circumstance, which means your real focus is no longer God. The real focus is your comfortability. I'm excited about this circumstance, therefore I worship God. No, you're worshiping self because self got what it wanted. You've made it external instead of internal. You can tell a true worshiper because they go through the circumstances of life with an unalterable joy and peace and contentment. Outside situations do not change the worship that's constantly occurring in their heart. Bill, uh, one of our elders, Bill McClellan, uh, I love Bill. Because when I show up, man, I get a big old fat bear hug from that guy every week. He loves to hug and love people. 
And Bill said, you know, we, we got in our car to come down, and man, it was pouring rain. It was really bad. But he said, I, an old hymn came to mind. I began to worship God, got so excited right there in the middle of all that rain. See, that's, that's a worshiper. That's a true worshiper. Brenton, you didn't know this, but when Brenton was playing and leading us, and then he had his guitar, one of the strings on his guitar broke. I don't know if you're aware of that. Probably happened on the first or the or maybe the first or the first part of the second song. Did Brenton seem like he stopped worship? Oh man, now I can't worship. I can't play my guitar. Playing your instrument is not worship. Worship is in here. Whether the guitar works or not, we still keep right on going. I've told you I know of a church in, in Ohio. They built their whole service around video production and big things and lights and all this stuff. And one Sunday morning, or one, one week, the uh, city of that town actually uh, sent out a message to uh, all the businesses and churches. And they said, hey, we're going to be working on the grid, the power grid, on the weekend, and so uh, just know that the power will be down. Well, they had their staff meeting that week to talk about the next Sunday when they do their big productions and video and all this stuff. And the pastor actually said to the team, we're not going to have power. We can't do church. We can't do church. I, I would say that when you thought you were doing church, you weren't doing church if you have to have power. It was dead while it lived. We, we, if we lose this, we can't meet in here one Sunday. We'll go somewhere. Why not? God gave us a beautiful beach. Let's just go down to the beach, down to the park, right next to the beach, and we'll have worship. Our hearts should not faint because external things don't go the way we want. Worship's bigger than that. Lastly, let's, let's close this out. There's an attitude of worship. It's internal, it's intense, it's habitual. But lastly, worship is humble. If you don't get anything else, please get this. True worship can only rise from a humble heart. You say, what's a humble heart? A heart that gives no thought to self. A heart that gives no thought to self. Pride is the worship of self. Pride sees God as the competition to self. That's why there's a constant battle between flesh and spirit in you. If you're not thankful, it's not because God hasn't fulfilled his promise. It's because your comfort level isn't where you want it to be. You're centered on self-satisfaction instead of soul satisfaction. You didn't get what you expected, what you counted on, what you hoped for, what you prayed for, what you thought you deserved. Pride remembers all the wrongs, all the shortcomings, and holds it. Pride wants to strike back when it's offended. Pride wants to retaliate. Pride could never be fulfilled with the worship of God because it fixes itself on self-appeasement instead of God-pleasing. But humility is the opposite of pride. Humility cares nothing about your personal comfort. You hear what I just said? Humility cares nothing about personal comfort. I think this church knows a little bit about that because every week we come and sit in these metal chairs. 
I don't think anybody would say, oh, these are the most comfortable chairs. But that's worship. Worship goes on even with a metal chair, right? It never complains. Humility never goes around complaining of the inequities committed against yourself. Humility is so focused on God that what benefits or befalls you becomes secondary in value. You see, it's impossible to be humble and focus on you at the same time. You can't do that. Nobody can. You can't be humble and make it about you. And by the way, just to kind of reinforce and motivate you to move away from pride, God hates pride and he resists the proud. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Anyone who comes to worship God must do so in an attitude of humility. Otherwise, you're doing it for show. Honestly. If you're doing it for self-pleasure, you're doing it to show somebody. When someone is worshiping God with an attitude of humility, it looks like they are lost in God. It's the most beautiful thing to see someone worshiping God in humility. They're lost in God. To get lost in God is to make self a non-factor. It's not about you. It's all about God. I told you the story. I went up, Rini and I had the privilege right around 1999. We went up to New York City and spent a week, and uh, I wanted to visit some churches. I went over and checked out the the, uh, the uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle. That was a great experience. And then I uh, had the chance to go over to Times Square, and just right there on Times Square, on a side road, one of the repertoire theaters was turned into a church. It was uh, uh, David Wilkerson's church, Times Square Church. And we got there on like a Monday, and uh, so I, I, went, I stopped by there, and there was a guy cleaning the windows of the doors. And I said, hey, I said, when's your next service? He goes, oh, tomorrow night. I said, oh, is David Wilkerson going to be speaking? He goes, we don't know. We never know who's going to speak. It's not about the speaker. This is the window washer. And I thought, ooh, man. And so we came back the next evening. I think the service was like 6 or 6.30. We got there about 30 minutes ahead, wanting to get a good seat. Walked in, and I, there was nobody in there. And I thought, oh, let's go down front. So we were making our way down, but on every, and they're the repertoire theater seats, you know, that fold down. But on every one of those seats was a Bible and maybe a, a coat. Everything was taken. I said, what? We had to sit in the back. They were all off praying. I'm talking about a repertoire theater. I'm talking about a big Broadway theater. And the service started, and the worship was unbelievable. If I've ever seen heavenly worship, I saw it in New York City. As people gathered and started pouring in that place on a Tuesday night, overflow only i mean it was just packed out i saw people in three-piece suits who had been working on wall street that day i saw cooks that came in with their things still on aprons with goo and whatever all over them nobody cared who sat where everything in between every kind of national person you could imagine every ethnicity represented and when the worship started, these people began to just 
with unadulterated praise, mega exaltation of God. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And Greg King, my friend, went up there. He had the same experience, but he said, Greg, i got to tell you a funny story. So I'm there, and I noticed there's a, a guy, an Asian man, and you could tell he probably was like a dishwasher. I mean, he was, came in, he didn't have clothes, weren't really that clean. He's right there, just over here to the side of me, one row up, worshiping. And uh, he said, we're all just, man, we're just worshiping the Lord. And I kept noticing this guy going like this, and he'd go, and he, right back to it. And, and, if, and Greg thought, what in the world? The guy's false teeth were falling out. He'd throw them back in and keep right on going. He had, <laughs> listen, he had no awareness of self in the presence of all these people. All he could see was God. It was the most incredible thing. Wow. That's worship. This is the attitude that Mary shows us. In verse 48, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. So Mary herself is consumed by the incomprehensible thought that God would have such a high regard for such a humble person. What's that? Let me just say this to you. Let me tell you what's amazing about that. She doesn't say anything about herself in the Magnificat. Nothing. Spontaneously, she bursts forth, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's a nobody. Both socially and culturally, she's just a simple handmaid about to be married to a village carpenter. She could care less about self. Joseph worked with his hands. He probably made chairs, he made tables, he made doors. He might have even built a home or two. But, but Joseph's a simple man. They both saw themselves as lowly. We can see from Scripture that Mary was a pure and godly woman. But here's the thing about those who are pure and godly. They never see themselves as pure and godly. Those who are truly pure and godly don't see themselves as pure and godly. All they see when they look at God is how far from God they are and that He would still love me even though I know I'm so imperfect. They're not caught up in self-righteousness. That's pride. Looking the part, coming to church to look the part. No, they're just, they're pure and godly because they're humble. They don't see themselves. See, humility is always at the heart of true worship. A sense of unworthiness, a sense of sinfulness, a lack of qualification for anything, for any blessing, for any goodness, for any gift from God. And when it comes, you're just absolutely shocked that God would overwhelm you with such wonderful news that you've been forgiven, saved by Jesus. And out of that spirit, you worship like that little child. That's Ainsley, by the way, doing that. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Amen. This is the attitude of worship. So my prayer for you today is that the true spirit of Christmas, God worship, would be yours. Not only today, 
but through this week and certainly on Christmas morning. I thought it would be appropriate for us to close our service with communion because if the message is about God worship and we have already studied the last couple weeks that Jesus came for one reason. He was born in order to die. If there was no Calvary, there would have never been a Bethlehem. We got to keep that in mind. He went to the cross. He paid the price for us. He has saved us for all eternity, and he is in process of sanctifying us. And from God's position, you this morning are holy, positionally speaking. Even though you're still trying to work out, you're striving to practice what you are positionally before God, holiness. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So we're going to go ahead and I'm going to have the, uh, the ushers come and prepare the tables. And we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, remembering that our Lord Jesus went to the cross. He died for us. He became the Passover lamb. And what we're doing by taking the elements, if you're a believer, what you're doing is remembering that Jesus paid the price. He gave up his life for us. He's perfect. We're not. The perfect one died for the guilty. Amen? So what I'm going to do is invite you to come in just a moment. And what I'd like for you to do, both sections, to come down the center aisle, go by the table, take the elements. They're stacked. It's two cups that are stacked. The bread is in the bottom cup. The, the, the juice is in the upper cup. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ, which was broken for you. The cup symbolizes the blood of Christ that was poured out on the cross for you. The fact that he gave up his life that you might be saved. Let's remember and listen, church, let's rejoice and worship the Lord. I love what's happening right now with a baby crying in the room. I love it. Here's why. Because we just got finished saying true worship isn't controlled by the circumstances around us. And if that was irritating you, you haven't entered into true worship yet. And you won't like Vero Bible Fellowship because we love our children. Amen? We do not want children that act perfect in church. That's religious and that is legalism. We want kids to be free, to be kids. And we want to love them no matter what. Amen? Just like God the Father loves us as his children. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't be good enough. So God said, let me take care of that for you. Amen. So let's stand. Let's pray. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would invite you to receive him as Savior today. It's simply by believing that he is the Son of God recognizing that you are a sinner and by faith trusting in him for your sins to forgive you. If you do that and you truly mean it from your heart, then you are saved today. And this table is for you to come and participate. If you've not done that, don't play a game. Please don't come. If you're not saved, it's, it's, really, it's only for the believer. That's not to put down people who aren't saved. 
everybody in this room at one point was not saved. So we're not here to judge anybody. But until you come to Christ, don't approach the table of the Lord. It's for those who come to find the truth personally about Jesus. Father, this morning we thank you for this time. What an appropriate way to close our service by recognizing and remembering what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. And now, Lord, we partake together as the family of God, the fellowship of believers in the body and in the blood of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen.